the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account, www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there, but if not, maybe leave us a great review on iTunes. Either way, we appreciate you, even without any of that stuff. Taylor and I are very excited to bring you all Ben Woodard. Ben is currently a research fellow at the ICI in Berlin, Germany. From 2017 to 2020, he was a postdoctoral researcher at the IPK, which is the Institute of Philosophy and Sciences of Art at, is it Lufana University, where he completed mm-hmm. habilitation on the analytic continental divide in philosophy through the work of F.H. Bradley. Since 2020, Ben has lectured at the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy, mostly on the history, philosophy, and politics of the life sciences. In broader terms, his work focuses on the relationship between naturalism and idealism in the long 19th century. He also writes on science fiction, horror film, and literature. It's good that you have a science fiction based because I'm obsessed with Dune, and uh, (laughs) I don't want to be a total uh, jerk and bring that up without any context. So hopefully you might have read some of that. But anyways, enough of all that. We're thrilled to have you on the show, Ben, and uh, look, very excited to talk about some Bergson today, which I didn't state what we're going to be tackling, but we took a look at creative evolution this week, which I very much enjoyed. So again, welcome. I should also say as a, yeah, I mean, in terms of the Dune thing, I'm actually teaching a sci-fi course at the moment. Oh, nice. Awesome. And so I'll be actually talking about Dune, I think in two weeks, wow. two or three weeks, because I'm doing a book on colonialism and science fiction, actually. Oh, so, oh very shit. cool. So there's well, definitely a Dune chapter. That's <laughs> awesome. That- that already sets up you as a returning guest. When, whenever <laughs> yeah, exactly. your book gets published, we can talk about that and get into Dune in the weeds and, and that area. But I know one thing that before we ask about your origin story, which I mentioned to you before the show, we definitely want to hear about how you got into philosophy and specifically maybe Bergson and Schelling and the life sciences. One thing that Cooper and I have kind of bandied back and forth, probably in a way that's loosely speaking about... um. Frank Herbert's vitalism and whether or not that like applies or uh, can characterize some of the themes in the book. So that would be my two cents if Dune came up. Obviously, Coop has all the references kind of stocked away in his memory (laughs) drawer. But uh, that's always been kind of our um, one of the things that we've we've brought up is like this vitalist impulse behind some of the themes or landscapes, whatever. There's definitely, I would say there's definitely moments in, and we can talk about the vitalism thing, of course, in, in Creative Evolution and how mm-hmm. Bergson is not 
you know, why Brixen isn't a vitalist. Right. Um, but there's definitely the end. I can't, it's either the end of chapter two or maybe it's the end of chapter three. But there's this very triumph, this sort of like triumphant uh, image. He talks about like the consciousness of humanity, like riding like an army. Yes. Um, it's a very strong Dune uh, yeah. <laughs> kind, of, kind of vibe in that sense of like, yes, the sort of life towards consciousness will sort of triumph. And I mean, it definitely has this uh, this kind of revolutionary bent to it. Though whether or not Bergson's Catholicism makes him not so fun politically, that's a whole nother can of worms. Right, right. Um, well, Herbert was a Catholic too as well. Interesting. Yeah. That was the whole origin of the Orange Catholic Bible and the Bene Gesserit too, like as the Jesuits. I'm oh, sure really? he went to like Catholic school and that was like kind of an aspect of it. It makes me think of uh, what's the Monty Python sketch every every spring. No one sacred. expects the... Oh. No, I was thinking of the... That's the Catholic vitalism, right? Is is you know go forth and multiply, yeah. like, be fruitful, and but in any case, Ben, yeah, I just before we get into uh, into Bergson and and some of these themes and creative evolution, which I agree with Coop is a is a very fun read. I've only kind of poked around in it, so getting to read it more systematically was really interesting. But definitely wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your background and. I guess I will mention that you and I have a, a little bit of a, of a prehistory. You know, we used to back in the the blogosphere era participate in some of the speculative uh, realism stuff. You know, me with just my little bootleg translations of Laura Well, and you doing the more interesting stuff with. Uh, I know you've written on Raisin Agarastani and some other thinkers in that area, but just feel free to kind of. Tell us a little bit about your evolution, not to pun, but your development into uh, into the thinking you are today. I feel like people often have like some really nice moment of like Eureka or something, but for mm-hmm. me, it was pretty boring in the sense of <laughs> I uh, was forced to go to college. I didn't want to go. Mm. I wanted to just be a musician. And so, but yeah, parents who were the first generation college, you know, said, you know, no options. I went and it's through a total fluke. I took a gender and sexuality studies class. And Interesting. And was a very good professor and very good TAs. And we read lots of philosophy. And so I think the first philosophy I really read seriously was Judith Butler and Derrida. And then just sort of started running it backwards. And Deleuze was the first philosopher that I really, I think, latched onto and then sort of wanted to read everything. And that was also my first encounter with with Bergson, you know, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, <clears throat> trace all of Deleuze's references, which as far as philosophers go, he's probably one of the worst to try to do that because suddenly you're, you know, reading Re- Dun Scotus and you're like cursing and you're like, what what's happening right now? It's it's a it's a whole series of rabbit holes, right? Yeah. I mean, which is both fun but also cumbersome. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And so that was my sort of first encounter with Bergson, sort of through Deleuze. And then after a couple of years, I sort of ended up like sort of looking at Badiou and and uh, Zizek a bit. And then, as you mentioned, the sort of speculative realism thing happened. I remember Nick Cernick sort of connecting, you know, us and, and yep. I always, you were always this, to me, this kind of like magical entity that somehow managed to translate things. <laughs> uh, all the time and there was also a funny period in that i think probably the 2000 teens or maybe 2007 8 9 or something when people always assumed that we had met and i was like nope actually he's yeah like we never really somehow 
This is actually kind of our first meeting, so it, it's a kind of belated, happy incident. I want you to keep going, but I wanted to throw out one of the times that we had talked about, because at this time during the, the teens, you know, the blogosphere, which was a lot of fun and, and you know, kind of had its own energy to it, if you will. I remember you speaking about maybe you were at the EGS and mm -hmm. you got to like talk to Badu. And I think you asked Badu kind of what his thoughts about Laura Well was. And he basically said to you something like, if I recall <laughs> you telling me that, that, oh, well, Laura Well, he's just a mystic. And I only bring that up because I obviously because of my interest in Laura Well, but I, I think that some of one of the articles you shared with us today about Bergson's vitalisms, you know, you can imagine that calling Bergson a vitalist also coincides with calling him a, one could just as well call him a mystic or a, or a spiritualist, quote unquote. So I think there is some, there's some uh, repetition or, um, you know, repeating of common pejoratives in the history of philosophy against other philosophies but in any case i just remember you kind of telling telling me that that little aside that besides uh but you just kind of dismissing Laruel and that that being pretty funny to me yeah it was like a one sentence like i you know just total tossing him away and i think i mean there's also if there's something in common between Laruel and bergson and of course, the fact that someone like John Malarkey is interested in both of them, yeah, is that they're you know they're both trying to find a third way, right? They're both, mm -hmm. in a sense, like trying to not accept the provided alternatives. Whereas you know, Badu is very much he's sort of a reinventor, mm -hmm. right? He's sort of a, I mean, a very complicated, interesting one. But it's not to like dismiss him, just going the other way. But I think there is something about this, like. Yeah, there's a certain method that becomes so that's so rejecting, yeah, the sort of field that often gets you called a sort of mystic or something like this. Right. So it doesn't really radical surprise. eminence as opposed to Badu's kind of interest in transcendence, right? I mean, that's you can kind of see the lineages. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, yeah, I mean, and Badu has also dismissed other people as vitalists in ways that I don't find particularly helpful. Well, like Deleuze, for example, right? Basically, I mean, or Chatelet, even like right, which he sort of said some nice things about Guillaume Chatelet, but then at other points, sort of said, "Oh, he's too close to Deleuze," and I always thought that was a bit unfair. <laughs> but yeah. But how about uh? I guess the last part of the puzzle, or you can fill in more pieces. But um, what about the interest in in Schelling and and the life sciences in general? Does this also extend out of your interest in Bergson? And do you perhaps have any? Were you interested in some of the work of, I, I believe you've written on, what's his name, Coop? I'm blanking here. Who, who translated um, Libido I mean, Economy? Ian Hamilton Grant. Yeah, you've written on on Grant before, I believe, too, right? And and he because he's, yeah. got, he's got some of that nature philosophy shelling stuff. So maybe tell us a little bit about, about that, too, and how that relates to the work we're going to discuss today, if you can. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it follows directly from from that time when I interviewed Badu and Zizek which was just good timing because they were talking about Mayasu and nobody else uh, right. knew who the hell Mayasu was except for me at that on the mountain, you know, in that month. Right. So I just was very, had total dumb luck in that sense. But also at the same time, I was reading, I just started reading Ian's Philosophies of Nature after Schelling. And so I knew Schelling a bit through Zizek and. Right. And the sort of, you know, post-German, uh, sort of post-Kantian, you know, psychoanalytic connections. 
but really I didn't know the natur philosophy. And so after Ian's book, you know, totally ruined my brain. Like it just totally rewrote <laughs> my, I never uh, recovered. And uh, so I started reading Schelling and that's how my masters, you know, became about Schelling. And that's also when I reread Bergson for the second time and looked mm-hmm. at creative evolution again, mostly because of the sort of natur philosophy connections, like Merleau-Ponty makes mm-hmm. the explicit connection, right? In his lecture notes on nature, right? He ends he ends the section with Schelling, and then the next paragraph is about Bergson and how they're similar and stuff. So that's cool. Yeah, I mean that was the sort of second reason, and then it was much later because I had a I had sort of a detour uh, with my postdoc on writing on totally different stuff, and then I came back to the life sciences and like looking at the legacy of natur philosophy and the post Kantian stuff. And then came to Creative Evolution the third and most recent time as a sort of historical document right. as much as a philosophical work, because it's also a really useful catalog of a of a understudied or sort of misrepresented time in terms of the history of the life sciences. And so it also has an interesting use in that sense. So yeah, that's the sort of most, re- most recent uh, look at it for me. And I will say that that's one of the benefits of the newest translation, which looks like it just came out last year because it it incorporates a a lot of those critical edition notes from the latest French edition, which I assume would give you perhaps some some more material and context to work with in terms of your looking at it as a a historical document and not just a a work of philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I've just started to look I've just started to look at that edition and just I didn't know about it until more recently than I, w- I wished. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if I should start to get into the weeds of it or if you... Please, yeah. I mean, I guess the for me, what's like most recently interesting about it, because of course it is, you know, Bergson is developing his philosophy in a different mode, obviously. I mean, that's sort of what the first chapter is about in, in part. But this period, you know, especially this, you know, 1850 to 1920 period, which is called very stupidly the eclipse of Darwinism, misleading term for various reasons, which we can talk about if you want. You know, it was really because of open season in the sense that people, or such say biologists in general, sort of saw that something like evolution was taking place, but they were skeptical about the role of, of natural selection. And so there's just a huge range of different approaches to either deny or augment or alter or supplant transformism, right? Sort of generalized term for evolution uh, Mm -hmm. in various ways. And it develops in pretty different directions because you have sort of various forms of Lamarckianism, you have various forms of Darwinism, Neo-Darwinianism, which is a bit more strict than you have all the kind of neo-vitalist things like with Driesch and these kind of people. And then you also have the sort of mutationists or people who are doing, you know, weird experiments on like finding out what genes actually might be. Right. It's all these, you have this kind of huge range of stuff and there's also political divisions within them. And so, you know, Bergson's text is written in the middle of this sort Interesting. of evolutionary theory, Wild West kind of moment where everything seems to be in doubt. And so he's really like writing at a moment when all that is going on, but then soon after Creative Evolution comes out, which I think is 1911, if I remember. Or is that the English translation? That's the translation. I think it's 1907. That sounds right. Yeah, I think that's right. Within 20 years, this sort of 
wild range of stuff will be narrowed to basically two kind of warring camps. I mean, that, that will then change later, but... The Darwinians and the Lamarckians or something, or... or... No, it, it becomes more... It actually becomes a debate between the biometricians, who are the people who combine a certain understanding, sort of statistical understanding of evolution. So they okay. sort of look at evolution as population models, which right. can be statistically grasped in terms of frequencies and stuff like this, versus those... Versus those people who emphasize variation and Mendelian genetics being about a kind of causal entity. Okay. Okay. So like the more materialist kind of reading of Mendelianism on the other side. And those are the kind of mutation-oriented people. And so, yeah, there's just this that kind of divide will sort of go on for a bit. And then basically the, the statisticians will sort of win and basically cruise until the 60s, until, you know... You get young whippersnappers like uh, Stephen Jay Gould being like, what the fuck? Like, this doesn't, like, what about paleontology, you know, and this kind of thing. And then you sort of get some more pushback, but really not until the 60s and 70s. I mean, that's a kind of crash version. But um, that division or that the division of the two camps really helps to crystallize ways in which, for example, like in A Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari obviously acknowledge you know, the positive aspects of Darwinian science for emphasizing populations. And yet they will also want to take their philosophy in this direction of continuous variation. And so you can kind of see uh, reconciling or working with those tensions rather than trying to choose one or the other. The other problem you get is in the 60s, you get a lot of retroactive histories so that mm. Darwin is represented as being more population-oriented than he actually was. Interesting. So, you know, Darwin didn't really care about populations as much as people said he did in the 60s. He cared a lot about variation. To him, variations were like the problem. How do you differentiate variation from a species? This is why he spent so much time with botany also, like because mm. that's the place where you really, yeah. if you can't tell sense. the difference, you really get in trouble. Gotcha, yeah. And that's kind of what Bergson focuses on when in the opening chapters, when he's talking about Darwin, he, he is putting the emphasis that Bergson's bringing out is variation. So, so what you're saying makes a lot of sense that, that it's, it's, it's not quite the same Darwin. I guess that's the neo-Darwinian bent, right? Is right. to mm -hmm. focus on populations. Got it. Yeah, because I mean, this is why the, the timing of the text of creative evolution is interesting because He's going after the neo-Darwinians, but he's mostly going after Weissman, right? Okay. And so, right, and, and there's like this notion, right, Weissman was one of the first people to try to give some kind of coherency to, to a notion of heredity that would be compatible with, with evolution, right, with Darwinian evolution, because Darwin had a pretty mixed, sort of uncertain idea of how heredity worked. He thought it was some kind of blending, but he didn't really know, and he didn't really put so much time into it so yeah. it bugged him but it wasn't his problem in a sense so bergson is definitely pushing against this weissman view that there was you know, the so-called weissman barrier right that there was a clear line between right what's inherited and what isn't inherited and this is kind of seen as a bulwark against various forms of lamarckianism but especially the the real sort of older version or the materialist lamarckians who would say like no acquired traits can be inherited so Weissman is trying to say, like, no, like, there's a division within bodies about what can be inherited and what can't be, and it can't be crossed. Like, there's a clear line. Right. But, of course, he didn't know. There still wasn't much 
there was no like material understanding of the causal roles of, of genes yet, which is why like within a couple of decades, you get the biometric people like Fisher and, and Galton and these people saying, well, let's forget about trying to identify the causal genes as causal entities. Let's just talk about the frequencies of genes in a population. Interesting. Okay. So you just sort of like grasp it that way, right? You grasp it in the aggregate as opposed to like the fine scale causal structure, if that makes sense. It does. And I just, I thought it was interesting. He, he tries to complicate Weissman in a way that's, that's interesting. Bergson does. Right. And one thing that, that I recall was, you know, um, ways in which Simon Don will do something similar to Weissman call into question the Soma German duality, but also just as an aside, that's fascinating to me, you know, 1920 Freud makes a pretty big deal of the Weissmannian theory of German and Soma for beyond the pleasure principle and kind of use that for his biological speculations. So there's, mm-hmm. it seems like that this is a, a, a kind of a well-talked about author, even if we may not remember him as clearly in the general consciousness today, at the time, those theories that you're bringing out were in discussion. It was a huge, I mean, he was a gay sort of one of the people who really seemed to, to solidify the Darwinian legacy in a way that then seemed experimentally tractable or that seemed to sort of put to rest some other forms of speculation. So that was a big, that was a big win for sort of what would then become the beginnings of the unification of Mendel and Darwin yeah, in the 1920s and 1930s, sort of beginning of what's called classical genetics, basically. So Weissman is the kind of ground that makes that possible. Interesting. Last week we read Bergsonism and I had brought up in our episode discussion just about, I guess, this Bergson sort of critiquing evolution as like a series of linear negations or something like that. And so what I brought up was this old, the stuff I remembered from just my intro to biology class about phyletic gradualism and punctuated equilibrium as ways to think about this this very steady negative process that's linear versus there's a long period of stability. And then there's all of a sudden, or at least seemingly these changes mm-hmm. appear or variation or adaptation or however, I'm sure you could probably speak to that better than I can. So. I mean, there's this quote um, it's on page it's once, I think it's page 170 of the, of the old translation where basically Bergson says what he takes, what he takes from like in the middle of the page, what he mm-hmm. takes from Darwin, what he takes from the sort of Neo-Lamarckians, basically. And I think this points to what you said, because, uh, I mean, I can just read it. So he says, this is not saying that the theory of the Neo-Darwinians must be altogether rejected any more than that of the Neo-Lamarckians. The first, so the Darwinians, are probably right in holding that evolution takes place from germ to germ rather than from individual to individual. The second are right, so the Neo-Lamarckians, and saying that at the origin of instinct, there is an effort, although there's something quite different, we believe, from an intelligent effort. But the former, so the Darwinians, are probably wrong when they th- make the evolution of instinct an accidental evolution, and the latter when they regard the effort from which instinct proceeds as an individual effort. It gets a bit murky, but essentially, right, what he's saying is that the Neo-Darwinians are right in the sense that there's a sort of, in terms of the speed, like there is a kind of slow, gradual evolution, but he thinks it can't be accidental, right? Right. 
And he says there is there is something about intelligence or instinct that the Neolamarkians are correct about, but it must be collective, not individual. Right. And so this is what he's essentially, I mean, that's essentially, to me, it's one of the closest mm-hmm. summaries of his views in the book in terms of like, at least in terms of the context of other theories of evolution. And he's like sympathetic to like the idea of mutation and of sudden developments, but he thinks those sudden developments are the result of a kind of tendency or the result right. something that's like intelligence but is not intelligence because it's this kind of collective effort towards a kind of general complexity. It's kind of interesting, right? He's kind of he sort of has this in terms of like punk eek, right? The sort of punk equilibrium like that there are there can be like sudden shifts. But for Bergson, they're not about structural or material shifts. It's this shift in a tendency kind of breaks mm-hmm. through because of contingency that it's introduced into matter, which is kind of how he defines life. But at the same right. time, he does think there is something to the gradualist, more traditional Darwinian picture. And that there is these small changes that occur that sort of that sort of make those tendencies more possible. You know, but it's very complicated to try and see like what exactly is the status of this tendency in terms of a theory, right? Is it a theory of life or is it is this where he's really like, no, like this is a metaphysical theory? This is the third way ism that you're that you're yeah. talking about. And I shared a quote from I believe it's the preface. It could be later in uh, Matter and Memory where he wants to kind of find a third way between realism and idealism. And, you know, this is where he makes this kind of image-based philosophy halfway between the representation and the thing. It seems similar, obviously, from an epistemological register, though, to what you're, you know, kind of saying, is this more on the side of biology? Is this more on the side of metaphysics? And I think that it's it's trying to kind of walk that tightrope, it seems. It also puts, I mean, you can see the effect of that also in Bergson's scholarship on creative evolution because you sort of are faced with this question of saying you know how much of it is a history of philosophy how much of it is a philosophy of biology how much of it is a bio philosophy right 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 right. and how much of it is just is metaphysics that's like using biology as material but is then but not enough to be called a bio philosophy right or how much of it is just preamble for the later more Lebens philosophy style Mm -hmm. stuff all of those have been claimed by various interpreters. And of course, the fact, especially when, I mean, there's a lot of bad history of biology that just kind of throws him out. Like either they call him a vitalist incorrectly, or they say he's just like a poet. You see that a lot, you know. Alain Vital, especially, you know. I mean, and it also gets back to what we were talking about before the we started recording, which was that his facility in writing, his, his style, he's also supposedly a renowned orator. We know about the traffic jam he, he caused at, at Columbia, York, yeah. you know, so his popularity and his ability to write, which is very much palpable, is actually ironically used against him. You see this with like Nietzsche, for example, he's he's a writer or a poet, not really a philosophy, you know, so you at a certain point, your skill as as a communicator, as a as a writer or a speaker becomes a detriment to your philosophical prowess, right? It's 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 um it's kind of a um a bad or an easy pejorative that seems to come out of a little bit of resentment, but I'm just projecting mm-hmm. here, I guess, on on others. Who knows why 
the reasons, different various reasons for rejecting him obviously would be individual in each case. But in any in any case, that's that's my speculation on that. Yeah, I mean it's it's also complicated by the fact that I mean it's interesting, like I think I mentioned, like it because it is a if you want like a good overview of the theories that are sort of in play at the time and the decades leading up to when he wrote the book, it's you know, it's a much better book than things written much later. <laughs> so okay. yeah. Because in the sense of that he's not really, you know, he's he's evaluating the theories in terms of what he thinks works and doesn't work, but he gives most things pretty fair play, right? Like even yeah. stuff he doesn't like, he doesn't just like throw it out the window without, you know, giving footnotes and references and going through the arguments and why he thinks it doesn't work. So in that sense, it's kind of, I mean, I tell people this, like if you want to understand a French reception of Darwin or like the history of philosophy of biology in France, Bergson's text is much better than anything Foucault wrote, which seems bizarre because like Foucault is writing, you know, in the 70s, you know, so much later. And it was interested mm -hmm. in some of the problems, but like the history is not really there in the way it is for Bergson. So there's also something, I think, because of his approach, because he had this approach that was not afraid to just kind of jump into the material, which maybe is part of this novelistic kind of mode. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just kind of exploring, so it's not a problem of, like, him properly setting up his own defenses and, like, boxing in stuff. He's just kind of going through what he thinks are the strengths and weaknesses of these things on a kind of flat plane. And it also makes it seductive, which is yes. probably what people reject or some people get nervous about. <laughs> Kant, I mean, Kant said the same thing about Rousseau, I think. He said, like, his, he's, like, too pretty to be trusted. I was talking about Rousseau yesterday and how he's it's often forgotten, like how how well Freud was a writer, but usually he's not rejected for that. He's rejected for other reasons, Oedipus, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But Rousseau often gets um, either stereotyped for the noble savage, which, you know, can obviously be you know criticized, but but specifically for his writing ability, it becomes a detriment. I didn't know that that Kant said that about about Rousseau, but I love that. I'm going to. I'm going to yeah. definitely steal that. I like that we gave a lot of the context and some of the, the arguments going on and um, what would be a, a great place to jump into because perhaps this third way leads us to maybe discussing Alain Vital a little bit. I mean, we mentioned it in, in passing, mm -hmm. but I think the, he drops the, the concept at the sort of the end of the first chapter I know that the authorized translation translates it as as vital impulse or vital impulse, which mm -hmm. while not literally incorrect, perhaps overdetermines it and gives it too much of a physicalist, almost quasi mechanistic idea, right? Impulse being a kind of, you know, could easily just be appropriated by or thought of in terms of physics of of a literal force that can be measured, whereas it's definitely much less able to be assimilated that way, I think, which is, I suppose, the general reasons for leaving it untranslated, giving it its its kind of breadth. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, you sort of have yeah, different ways of how people, of course, want to use it and whether Bergson wants to talk about it in explicitly metaphysical terms mm -hmm. and how that relates to and the way it's interpreted, I think, pretty often, right? And he sort of puts it this way himself, I think. 
at least in some letters, I believe, if not in the text. Right. But it's a kind of image, right? And of course, the role of images in Bergson itself is a problem for people who don't, you know, if you don't sort of know what Bergson means by image, you know, especially from matter and memory, for instance, um, then it's going to, it's like, oh, this is just a metaphor. And again, you can throw him in the sort of poet bucket, right? If you don't right. know that actually, no, well, you sort of have to use this type of, you know, again, it's just, like you said, it's this third way question of like, you sort of have to have these placeholders which are pointing to something, but to articulate them without falling into this dualistic trap or whatever. And it's, a yeah, I think, yeah, it's also why he is, you know, people see him as a, as a vitalist, but again, it's very easy to call everyone a vitalist or many people vitalists who weren't at this period, because there's lots of people, again, retroactively, because you have people positing theories that there must be some, you know, addition some something creative or something in addition to natural selection but that thing it might be a physical force it might be a metaphysical force or it might just be like what i think bergson is trying to get at more likely or he's sort of wrestling with is in a sense of it being like there's a dynamics right or there's these tendencies right there's some kind of complex there's some kind of level of complexity which isn't being addressed by the sort of existing themes. And of course, he he's not a vitalist because he doesn't want to say there's a special force for life, right? Because to him, that wouldn't make sense. There would be like this kind of complexity that would only appeal to life and nothing else. It's just that, you know, life does things that are peculiar in the sense of, in, you know, what he's, he says, you know, inserting contingency, right? Or indeterminacy into matter. And so he wants to say, right, like, there's some kind of analogy of the image of Alain Vital to the, you know, image of duration. He doesn't want to say they're the same, right? But he, he's explicit about that. But this, the sense that there's an analogy between these images, right, simply means, right, it's not just an analogy between two metaphors. It's that there's a kind of complexifying process, but that can only be experienced or lived, right? Yeah. And so part of the question is, What's the difference between experiencing life and experiencing duration as a complexifying tendency? And I think that's what a lot of the book is trying to wrestle with or trying to express. And of course, you know, he starts, you know, so much of the beginning of the the book is trying to say why, you know, he's not sympathetic, to, why he's not a mechanist, why he doesn't, why he also rejects finalism, why there's, you know, he thinks there's kind of individual or internal tendencies of life but he doesn't want to say it's all about the individual organism right he then he doesn't want to say there's an agency in the sense of like kant that kant describes to how we treat living things it has to be a kind of some kind of real complexifying force but then at the same time right he says there's this it's a heterogeneity that arrives you know by way of a variation from underlying continuity mm. this kind of whole problem of saying Right, this is this is this image, or again, this is another image, right? That lots of people know is the image of the shell, right? From the beginning of chapter two, I believe. Yeah. Right. We have the shell bursting, right, into other shells that then burst, right? And life is just this like series of explosions that came from the same point. We all we have to sort of retroactively reconstruct the like ballistics. So it's again this like continuity, heterogeneity problem is also part of this, right? This all kind of complex goes together that makes sense it does and i think what's really nice is how he kind of also has a theory of mind in order to go along with explaining 
how we try to think life because if you know we can at least think of the three eyes which I, I talked to Cooper about before we started recording the three eyes of Bergson you know instinct and intellect and intuition and how mm -hmm. science moves forward in intellect but it always wants to deal with discontinuities it feels more at home in that which is dead and so like trying to use the intellect to alone to think life to think Ilan Vital brings us into all these contradictions these false problems etc and it's like we have to amplify instinct to the point of intuition in order to sort of grasp the continuity of duration along vital and this is a kind of struggle against the you know it's almost like the intellect has to repress itself and struggle against itself in order to allow for us to kind of get this vision and to form this image that intellect kind of fails to try to articulate it's also why he's sympathetic to I mean, from the quote I read, you know, the, mm -hmm. the Neo-Lamarckians, and he's especially sympathetic to what are called the Psycho-Lamarckians, which always sounds funny to say, in the sense that, you know, they they sort of forget trying to say that there's a material inheritance of acquired characteristics, right? So that, you know, the classic thing of the giraffe stretching its neck, right? Then therefore its, right. its offspring have longer necks. But instead they say, okay, no, that doesn't occur, but there must, at the level of exactly things like instinct and intellect there must be some kind of intensification process and he he quotes a reference maybe he doesn't quote but he references several times as ed cope who okay. is yeah one of the probably the most famous of these psycholamarkians american though also famous because of having a ridiculous war about fossils with somebody Okay. Uh, which I can talk about it, which is a funny I mean, story. And also his name is Cope. So, you know, you can always just, uh, just, just mock him for his name, but I mean, go ahead and follow any of the <laughs> strands. There's a several passages in his work where he basically talks about how, if you look at the, the materiality or the structure of the neural systems, or you look at like the brains of the great apes or whatever. And he says like, look, you can't like explain the difference in human intelligence through these structures. And, and he basically makes this analogy of boiling water. The point isn't about the structure. It's about the, you know, the dynamics reach a sort of tipping point, but there's an intensification. And then there's a sort of like phase change, basically. That's the analogy he uses. And I mean, I made this argument in a talk, uh, which didn't go over well, I should say, <laughs> the Bergsonians. But that it's essentially, it's the same thing. Bergson says essentially the same thing, but he uses this image of the knife, right? Mm -hmm. So he says like that the mind is like the knife's edge of, you know, the brain, right? In the sense of like, it's not about like the matter, it's about the like honing of the the point at which it actually actualizes in reality, right? That that's what matters, not the underlying meat inside the head. And so I think he's he's very sympathetic to that. It seems strange that Bergsonians wouldn't endorse that unless they were uneasy about Bergson's theory of the virtual. I mean, as your interest in Deleuze would make you more sensitive to that argument, but perhaps they aren't as keen on that that emphasis of the virtual in, in Bergson. Yeah, I think it was partially that, but it's also, I, I mean, I realized this by reading a lot of secondary stuff on creative evolution. And the things I sent you guys are some of both yeah. Emily Herring and and Matilda Tahar, who I really like a lot. They, I think, is basically this kind of thing of like towing the line that some people will just defend Bergson on metaphysical grounds, hmm. even over and against 
if he says things that are incorrect in terms of like developmental history. And then, of course, you can do various retroactive moves and say, which people do, of course, and say, well, he was a critic of neo-Darwinianism and, and we're basically, we finally got to the point where like we saw that's true. We, you know, you can say, yes, that's true. But like, it's like, was he right for the right reasons? And then you have to say, well, I'm like skeptical. But this is why I like, you know, like Matilda Tahar's stuff, because I think she's very even handed in this sense, because she's like, a you know, very much a Bergsonian, but she knows the history yeah. of Darwin and, and very well and kind of says, well, like, you know, he puts a lot of, he, he falls into some very typical French critiques of Darwin, which were proven to not really make sense. Like this, you know, that natural selection is just, is just a sieve. It's just a filter, right? Like that doesn't really hold up. This was this, this uh, Mivart, um, which he cites in the book. Or the thing that, you know, the eye could never develop by accident, right? Like that's also, you can drop that. But then, yeah, the question then becomes how much of this, complexification argument in his work is worth holding on to as a kind of heuristic for, you know, whether it's Ilan Vital or you just say the complexity for thinking about biology, if not for like biological theory itself, if that makes sense. I think that's a lot of the the tension, you know, whether you sort of defend him as a philosopher or you, def or you, and it also depends on high secret of evolution in his work. Some people, you know, I think there's some Bergsonians who like don't talk about it that much. They spend much more time with matter and memory, which is kind of strange in the sense that creative evolution was like hugely, hugely popular, read, you know, popular, widely yeah. read, discussed by everybody. So it's easier to focus on perhaps matter and memory where the now the field is more epistemology ontology yeah, so. philosophy metaphysics proper but you know once you start complementing biology or the science with metaphysics which which is what i see kind of bergson continually a refrain in the work is if intellect is science's province that's not a detriment to science but mm -hmm. it kind of science giving the the ball to philosophy and metaphysics to sort of go in a direction to sort of to move beyond the curve if you will and sort of follow the tangent that intellect alone can't go to and so like i see this as not sort of a denunciation of science but a delineation or a delimitation of, of proper fields and roles it touches on what i mentioned before it's that if people see this work, it's where it's tempting, I think, for some people. And I think maybe in it's been a while since I read it, so maybe it's risky for me to say this. So like in Keith Ansel Keith Ansel Pearson's book, right? Um, on Bergson. Um, why am I blanking on the name? Germinal Life. Germinal Life, yeah. You know, there you in some I think you sometimes get a sense of like, well, creative evolution, it's like critiquing. Darwin and critiquing some of these things, which were limited, which is, you could say is true historically also. And, but then that's really just a runway for Leibniz philosophy. And then Leibniz mm -hmm. philosophy just rejects any kind of biological theory over the, over life, right? But then of course the whole category of life becomes inflated, right? It becomes pseudo like existential. I mean, you can talk a lot about how you want to read Leibniz philosophy as a, as a term, but in a sense, it becomes like a sort of defense against the sciences, right? I mean, once you get into the teens and 1920s, right, as things go on, right, there is a sense of like, you need to protect the category of life 
from biology. And of course, in a certain sense, you can say that makes that's like a smart move because the people who take over Darwinian thought are these like pro, you know, really pro eugenicist bastards. Right. <laughs> so it's like, in that sense, you want to say, well, yeah, that may, as a kind of rear guard move or whatever, that makes sense. But on the other hand, I want, you know, I don't think Bergson didn't give a shit about biology either. You know what I mean? So there's right. a kind of, it's kind of a hard choice. I think you have to make a little bit in how you, yeah, I want to read the consequences of the book now, basically. I'm always worried that I can just rant about all kinds of biology stuff forever because I've been doing it for like you're not you're not ranting. four years. So. My friend, this is this is great. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of places we can go. We we've already covered a, a good deal. Even brought up the the three eyes. I mean, there's one thing I could say more. Yeah, about, please about the intelligence stuff, which I think is really interesting, but I don't know where I stand on this because okay. he does have these moments like and, and i mentioned it i think this is before we were recording maybe mm-hmm. where he has this one of the chapters ends with this right consciousness like consciousness of human beings is like a army on horseback sort of leading the the edge of of evolution and i think one of the the difficult points in terms of how bergson is used now if he is seen as sort of providing a kind of alternative to certain traditional modes of of biology, I think this tension between heterogeneity and continuity, or between, you know, the sort of life begins as this whole and then differentiates, right? This kind of exploding shell image. I think, and that then, that there is this kind of complexifying intelligence, or this thing that kind of grow in instinct kind of complexifies itself. And this is part of, you know, the image of life that the, the question of what's often now talked about a lot in philosophy of biology is, you know, or the agency of the organism. I think it's an interesting way to look at Bergson because on the one hand, he seems to be very interested in that. I mean, he has these long passages about what insects can do and, you know, all these things, right. about all the, these capacities. And he also t- even talks about, we shouldn't talk about homo sapiens, we should talk about homo faber, right? Right this kind of externalization procedure being the most important one. But then this this uh, sort of the fact that life is, has to be, there's an experience, has to be in the experience, and that this complexifying towards intelligence is a sort of collective endeavor. I think it makes the question of individual agency very difficult. I mean, that's just one thing I sort of see, because he seems to kind of advocate it, but then he does seem to be a bit like, well, human beings kind of reached the this special place, but it's not really clear, like, how that happened. It has to be non-random. It has to be somewhat directed. Right? He's somewhat sympathetic to this notion of orthogenesis, right, that evolution is, it's not teleological per se, but it, it like, once it ha- finds a direction, it kind of keeps going in one direction. Yeah, to me, it just kind of, it leaves this question of agency a bit up in the air. Uh, but I don't know if if that stood out to you or had anything to do with what you saw in the in looking at the three eyes and that kind of thing. I agree with you about that. And it may underplay the individual, or, but at the very least, in the, in the first chapter, he himself kind of wants to muddy the lines or blur the lines from, or, or keep us from hyper fixating on individuality um mm-hmm. and this is where i see 
some resonances with Simondon because I think that remains a problem for Bergson is kind of how, for example, you could look at sponge colonies and is -hmm. the colony itself the individual or is the individual polyp the individual? And I think for Simondon, it's kind of sort of both depending on our our way of viewing things. And this is why it'll push him to try to uh, articulate individuation in terms of systems of information. I think that's the problem that Simondon wants to take up. And and I'm not sure exactly if Bergson focuses on that, but, but takes it as a starting point that individuality is kind of nebulous. Even mm-hmm. the individuality of instinct and intellect coming from a common source or sort of always coming in mixtures, kind of like perception and recollection and matter and memory, right? There's right. It's hard to kind of isolate pure perception, pure recollection in the same way that it might be difficult to isolate sort of either pure individuality or pure intellect, whatnot. These are, as you're, uh, the word, the operative word would be, these are kind of tendencies. And um, so, yeah, I, I hadn't put it in terms of individual agency, but when you say it that way, it's it does constitute a problem. But on the other hand, one of the benefits is thinking of intelligence collectively, because I think a lot of times, whether in science or metaphysically, we may have a tendency to think of intelligence as situated in the brain, as situated in an ego, in a self, and undermine some of the social networks and bulwarks that make intelligence activity possible, even on an individual level. So you can kind of see that it it is a tension, and it helps us to, I suppose, we have to sort of orient our our perspective to isolate or focus on one or the other, but that's, I mean, that's definitely interesting. And I, and I really appreciated him going into intuition as kind of the complexification of, of instinct, because in the Bergson book, you know, the Deleuze is moving, it's dense stuff, but he's also moving pretty quickly. So it was hard to tell the interrelation between intellect, instinct, and intuition. And so that second chapter kind of methodically worked through and made clearer. This may or may not be related to anything, but one of the things I said to Coop was that his way of it's kind of a critique of intellect, but at least it like delimits it, which it's it works with discontinuity and it focuses it, it's more at home with the dead than with the living. And that's why it's suited to kind of mechanism, etc. It made me recall, as I said to Coop, uh, Schraber's God. I'm not sure if you're inter- if you're familiar with the kind of famous Schraber case and yeah. his memoirs, but, you know, he conceives of this God that's kind of forcing him to become woman and repopulate this barren earth that for the most part god doesn't like involve himself in the realm of living it's only great individuals like schraber that who, who are still alive that get to sort of undertake the agony and the ecstasy of providing pleasure constant pleasure to this god who normally only understands the dead and it kind of made me think a little bit about um how brickstone methodically works out intellect how it's it's not able to think duration. And one thing that I appreciate, last thing, one thing that I appreciated about the new translation was how it leaves duree untranslated because our English duration kind of still implies a quantitative mode of measurement when Bergson means it qualitatively and means it in terms of a kind of non-metric multiplicity or non-denumerable multiplicity. This question of duration, and, and I should also say that this talking about things in terms of tendency, it's it's something that's emphasized 
by um, Tano Pastiaro, who wrote this book, which is like one of the most recent books. It's really, it's like a thorough reading of creative evolution. So he does a good job of sort of showing how tendency is really important. And, you know, one of the things that's, and it's also like from what you said, this this idea of, of how instinct, the relationship between instinct and intuition, it's also something that Merleau-Ponty points out, right? It's again, part of the connecting points between Schelling and Bergson is that there's a kind of, which is of course connected to duration, right? The fact that it's being, you know, in this qualitatively rich context that one is able to alter one's environment in a way that has to do with like affordances and with, you know, grasping certain you know complex processes that isn't just about chopping them up into like necessarily easily measurable things it's just about kind of complex responsivity and tendencies and and these kinds of these kinds of modes one thing that always i always struggle with a bit with bergson and this i mean it connects to the duration question but it also i think it's also connects to how he some of the ways he reads darwin i think not quite fairly is the sort of role of the empirical. And I think mm, this influences mm-hmm. Deleuze, I think, quite a bit in the sense that there's a sort of sense that things have to be empirical to be tractable. In a, so even if they're not um, measurable, they have to be sort of empirically tractable in a certain sense. And this sort of feeds into this. He has this whole critique about in, his whole critique about Darwin's idea of variations, this whole notion of insensible variation, which again, like um, Mathilde Tahar picked up on that like this is really a sort of misreading it's a misreading of darwin by bergson really but it also i wonder how much of it plays into this this fact that he sort of needs there to be a kind of a deeply empirical understanding of even something like instinct intuition yeah has to be sort of like presentable at least in the sense of like an image and if that sort of limits him in a certain way like the intellect being modifications of the of the organic or sorry, modifications of the inorganic and and instinct being modifications of the of the organic, like that kind of division. Yeah, in the sense that that then like the or so the organic because it's about you know because the elan or these images are all about this kind of lived experience, but experience has to be, you know, like there's a certain then I think that there's a weight put on sensibility, in some kind of general sense. I mean, I bring it up because it's one of the stick real sticking points that. Bergson, you know, talks about how adaptations can't be random or certain variations can't work the way Darwin says because they're insensible. And of course, um, I see. So the emphasis is on the insensible. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. But it's it's like you either have to see it as as um, Bergson misreading Darwin pretty badly, or Bergson like having to have this kind of certain broad notion of of the empirical because you know the sense that like. You know, he says, how could there be variations or mutations that you couldn't see or that the organism couldn't, you know, use, right? He's like, how would then you have evolution happen? And of course, it sort of rules out all these categories of like X adaptation or, you know, things that like changes can happen, which don't change the structure, but just kind of ride along for generations and then will cause something to change that is mildly beneficial but then you know later on might lead to another change right so there's always kind of gradual but indirect variations which you know don't really feed in well to to bergson's picture right. if there is this kind of image of like you know a tendency towards complexity as this kind of triumphant you know sort of 
move, then there starts to become an issue there. But yeah, yeah that, that, whether that's that was, a flaw or not. That that was one part that I do recall where he is critiquing Darwin for, and I, I forgot that that's how he phrased it in these insensible variations that kind of accumulate. And he's calling into question how, you know, because they, they aren't necessarily useful in their infinitesimal accumulation, but it does seem like he perhaps downplays the notion of a critical threshold. Whereas you brought up the, like the boiling water analogy where there's a phase change, there's a phase shift that, you know, you could infinitesimally increment elevating the temperature degrees, but at a certain point you, you do reach these critical singularities. And so that does seem to be something that perhaps is downplayed in order, as you're pointing out, perhaps a little bit of misreading, but also perhaps a more rigid empirical basis. That's definitely food for thought. And I guess I will, in order to keep the conversation going at least a little bit more, because we have covered well, a... I was going to I was going to yeah, ask. Yeah, go ahead, please. This actually yeah, might be a, a tailored question, but I was kind of curious. How do you feel about that compared to the way that this, like an anti-Oedipus, they discuss the state developing? Because it seems like there would be all these kind of like... The all okay. at once? It, it, yeah, state, because there were, there would be this sort of accumulation of these imperceptible, well, quasi-imperceptible chess pieces being moved into place. Like, this would maybe, like, there has to be the sort of, the ground for the state to emerge from has to be these innovations have to be carried out. I mean, obviously, something like the development of cities, first of all, or like agriculture, right? That's like a grounding for the state. Yeah. And it's what, you know what I mean? And so all of these things start to accumulate until then it so then it appears like the state kind of pops out of nowhere in this manner of like I discussed earlier with the uh, punctuated equilibrium or something right. like that. But, I, it, you know, I'm, this is. So all you're bringing it. up like like the the, the Erstadt idea, right? That it just kind, kind of like, yeah, there well, there comes there's... fully formed as though it had always been there. Right. Sort of as analogous to the way that these historical forms meet some kind of critical mass where they become perceivable or mm -hmm. something like that. These sort of minor changes all like accumulate up and then we can sort of perceive them or something like that. But I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's, that's good. I, I'll let Ben, if, if you would like, uh, might be too speculative, but I mean, I don't think so. I think you were, I think you were dovetailing with kind of what I was saying. I mean, about yeah. Trying the, to think about the mechanism behind the, how this works, I suppose. The, the downplaying of Darwin's, these infinitesimal variations does seem to also have to downplay a kind of critical threshold that can be seen in the discussions of the state form to a certain extent. I mean, but, I, even to think about something like an innovation, like uh, the printing press, for example, like the printing press the Gutenberg Bible allows for Protestantism to emerge, right? Because it's mm. like, it provides the ground, what the grounds for possibility or something like that. Yeah. Conditions of possibility. Conditions of possibility. Yeah. 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 Exactly. More literacy, et cetera. For yeah. more, uh, God, I, I mean, now that's just interesting in regard but to also like for, the, the speed for of change. Just the mon not just the monastery having the, the Bible to be read to the people, the populace yeah, actually precisely. having the means for, Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily the kind of phase shift. Maybe that's that's a little bit more linear. But I mean, the way that this Erstadt or the state comes out, you know, that I think fits that model. Right. And I, I go ahead. Go ahead, Ben. Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, I don't know. I mean, in terms of the my anti-Oedipus is too rusty. Uh, <laughs> no, that's in fine. that sense. 
I think it's a very interesting point to like push Bergson on because on the one hand you do have he does make this Homo Faber claim. Then if you have this kind of Homo Faber model of humans and like how technology works, but if it's if it's a result of a complexifying process, which is like at some point becomes, you know, it's sort of like is that like mostly because of this complexifying form of intuition that comes out of instinct? Or how much of, of Homo Faber requires right, the scientific mode, like how do those two work together? But the other thing, you know, I think this is a related problem I have with Bergson, is that I think it's again because of this empirical question or this question of sensibility. I find it often hard, like rereading the text, um, you know, looking back at especially chapter two, how he thinks about scales. Because I think the whole problem of, I'm not quite sure how he sees scales of change. Yeah. Or even time. I, I was thinking about that as the way that like there are different durations. Like we have our duration, but like the duration of a yeah. bee or something like beings at that level experience a different type of time or their duration doesn't follow exactly the same yeah. way as ours, at least perceptually in that they have a more supposedly slow motion or time moves at a slower duration for their duration of slower or something like that. That's why a fly yeah. can sort of always evade your grasp because mm -hmm. your perception as a just by I don't know if it has a correlation with size or whatever the case may be, but it seems like maybe there is an issue with the bigger the organ the size is, the slower dura duration would be. And I mean, if you think about that relative to like the cosmos, I don't mm -hmm. maybe, but I, that's again to piggyback off of what Coop said. That was that's part of the difficulty I'm having with duration as psychological reality versus some in a text like duration and simultaneity when duration is with this conversation with Einstein, which obviously we don't have time to get into, but mm -hmm. it'll come down to where Bergson wants to kind of say there's there's one duration, there's kind of one universal time. So it does seem there's some tensions there. And I'm sure there are great scholarly works that that sort of get to this. But it does seem to be it's subtle it's a subtle process but yeah yeah because i was thinking you know there's because he talks about he doesn't engage with the sort of the so-called saltationists right like he talks about a little bit hugo de vries and these people who were the ones who rediscovered mendel and 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 talk about mutation and he sort of champions them not in the sense that they were sort of trying to figure out the causal structure of genes but more that they were advocating for sudden sudden changes Okay. Right, and he talks about this this famous example of, you know, the primrose, right, which is named after Lamarck by De Vries. And of course, you know, like in that sense, and this is again the insensible thing, is that you can have there's levels of insensibility, right? In the sense that you can have this thing that was seen to be a sudden to be capable of sudden mutation, right? This primrose. It's actually because it has just a really complicated chromosomal structure. It's just a much more finer grained variation. Even though, of course, he and not, not only Bergson, but many other people saw this as like proof against Darwin. But in the sense of it's like, well, it's not really in the sense that like it's just a finer grain or different scale right. of change. And so yeah, that's where I'm, I also have this issue, which I think maps onto the durational question of like, it's like how, how context, how context constrained is intuition or instinct, like relative mm -hmm. to species, right? And that becomes, because he'll say things like, you know, he'll talk about this, this wasp that parasites 
caterpillars or whatever like he'll, he'll talk about like how is it that they know what they're doing right they seem to know like there's some kind of tendency or like instinct is like really complex yeah but then he doesn't want to give like too much and this is also the, why i was thinking about agency too he doesn't want to give too much species specific capacity which would then play into like different durations and play into different scales. So that's, that's why true. I think he's kind of on the fence, like, or he's, he's a bit like trying to play it both ways. Cause again, yeah, he wants to have a general notion of duration, which is analogous to a general notion of lived experience. Yeah. Right. Even Alain Vital is kind of interesting because, you know, Alain can be a momentum, which we can think about in terms of what Coop brought up was this gradualism, but it can also be an outburst. It's kind of like as though the primrose that you brought up is a more, sudden explosive outburst right to go back to your ballistics analogy that he starts mm -hmm. with chapter two with because he will talk about it too as like life is posing problems that it's solving and so some some problems might seem to be a little bit more more gradual and incremental and then there might be but that that brings up your your question of scale uh and the the elan because it's so amorphous if you will it's kind of indeterminate in a certain way yeah. which is why it's left untranslated nowadays. The impetus, to go back to its original translation, is our impulse, sorry, can, can be either uh, a large sudden burst or seemingly more progressive. And that does bring up this question of there being a heterogeneity or multiplicity of scales. I did want to ask, because of your interest, you brought up Schelling and Bergson, would, it, so would something like instinct be like what the will or the or blind will in in shelling or is there probably no one-to-one -one correlation but merely just a series of analogies in order to sort of get there or is that it's probably a poorly posed question but um no i mean it's not then there's there's a point there's actually a point i can't remember which chapter it is unfortunately and he has these ita these italicized bits and at one point he does say like the mis bergson says the mistake and he i think he's re he's really going against like natural philosophy i think mm. you know he wasn't a fan of shelling i know at least for other, <laughs> for other there's other contexts where i know he wasn't such a fan but he basically says there's a mistake to think there's like a single tendency across species and so like there's this quote which Schelling uses but I think it comes up maybe also in Goethe you know something like reason what is it it's like reason uh sleeps in the stone mm. you know it's like sort of like half away. I don't remember exactly you know it's sort of like dreaming in the plant and then it's awake in the animal or something like this right and so Bergson like specifically rejects that and so on the one hand and this is where it gets complicated again this this tension between individual species like species and a general tendency towards thought right or, right or like a general complexification of instinct into intuition and then however that goes because i think i think in, in a sense the difference boils down to there's a much deeper there's like a much deeper continuity in shelling and even though bergson starts with a continuity it's sort of it's it's kind of like a problem to be resolved yeah in a sense and that's why you kind of have this image imagistic kind of approach, which, you know, it's like about, oh, it's in a sense, like, it's not a problem. It's like a, it's like a thing to be avoided hmm. because it's like a bad problem to get stuck with, essentially. This is also what Merleau-Ponty, I'm also just riffing off what Merleau-Ponty says, um, where he says, like, where's like Schelling, you know, Schelling's whole point is like, you, the continuity is like a productive constraint. 
and you don't you, you there's no point in talking about like in trying to get around it whereas i feel like i feel like continuity or heterogeneity is like a more even is set up as like a sort of a false choice in Bergson. It's about trying to find the third way. Whereas I feel like with Schelling, it's like, no, it's continuity all the way down. But that continuity is so strange and alien that we never really grasp it properly. And so like, I think they can appear to be in agreement, but I think there's, in a sense, there is a difference, even though they both have this kind of augmentative model of an, of instinct and intuition and intelligence. But yeah, I think it's it's much more... I think it has a it has a deeper has a deeper and but dif- more difficult to deal with status in Schelling and the other nature philosophen than for Bergson, if that makes sense. I mean, that's good. It, it's it's food for thought. It's something to explore more. Um, I do know that when he writes his retrospective on Ravisson, he mentions mm-hmm. Ravisson meeting Schelling and how the one didn't know much German, the other didn't know much French, but they still perhaps, you know, stimulated one another. So at least in that retrospective, which I think is in the creative mind, he seems to at least give some praise to Schelling. I know it's not in the particulars of his philosophy, but at least as kind of acknowledging him as a genius. Yeah, it's funny. I actually wrote an an essay when I sort of start with that anecdote because, and sort of say like, what was the real connection between them? Mm-hmm. And it's a very weird, indirect one. But yeah, in the sense that they both sort of saw, like both Revisan and Schelling saw sort of, had a sort of interesting relationship between formalism and nature. I think uh, Bergson is a little bit more allergic to formalism, at least in that regard, than Revisan yeah. was. In terms of it like relating to art and like the sort of aesthetic form, I think he was a bit less happy with that maybe <laughs> than Revisan was. Well, we have been going for about an hour and a half. Coop, how are you feeling? Are you? I mean, we could talk about some of the fun Dune kind of speculative shit as it applies to like evolution yeah. and all this. I don't know if that would be that, worth. I don't know. That, that can allow <laughs> Ben to talk about his, yeah, exactly. his course. He's going to be teaching Dune soon. And that can segue to the outro about your forthcoming publication. So, yeah, I mean, Coop, if you want to blast away uh, about Dune for a minute before giving Ben the last word. Sure. Um, um, have at it, my friend. Maybe it'd be a good idea to like talk about kind of Herbert's vitalism, because I think he definitely is in this very vulgar materialist idea of what evolution is. And Ben, I don't know if you've read God Emperor of Dune. Have you by chance? Yes, but it was probably a while. <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> I always bring up this example because it's so kind of goofy, but one of the opening scenes of the book is Siona Atreides and her band or whatever they have. They have broken into Leto's Citadel. They've stolen some of his journals. They're escaping. There are these D-wolves that protect Leto's Citadel or what have you, right? And he's kind of like watching Siona being chased by the wolves. And he's like, oh, he's kind of like getting all sort of excited about the fact that the predator is really like impacting Siona's genes and that gen- and that predator's pressure is what oh. is creating, like is generating this creative evolution to come, mm-hmm. I suppose, via the scattering of humanity, right? Across the galaxy as this sort of, I don't know, as a sort of what, a, like a self-preservative drive almost in humanity to expand whether that be 
via Paul's jihad that occurred mm -hmm. raged across the galaxy as this sort of vitalistic impulse within humanity as this kind of being the sort yeah this kind of singular human appetite for difference and expansion and exploration and creativity etc but yeah i don't know if you have any and i was really a question there <laughs> thinking about arrakis as this incubator for making well, yeah. the, the fremen right and uh right exactly god created a it's like the the harsh climate of arrakis is what generates thought it's what generates creativity right because it's a the problem of arrakis is water you know how do we solve for that problem so that's why still suits that's why all these innovations occur and etc right because it's a necessity it's an absolute necessity so they have to experiment and solve these problems and that's how their culture evolves around this the management of water but that's also about how they become better warriors than the what are they called the Sardaukar, uh, who also Sardaukar. are like the Sardaukar live on inhabit a prison planet so the mechanism is the same the mechanism is environment yeah. is strictly determinative of evolutionary traits harsh, harsh world, world yeah generates creation if there's no challenge if there's no problems to be solved that leads to a type of stagnation across humanity to where we're not thinking we're simply relying on others to think for us and there's no real i guess progression of society this is not my view this is kind of just talking about how i the impression i get from frank herbert i mean yeah of course one we already brought up his catholic you know catholicism you know it's hard not to hear like you're made to suffer mm. and suffering makes you stronger kind of mode yeah exactly just you know from life the, school of war yeah um kill me makes you stronger kind of, of yeah vulgar nietzscheanism yeah which sort of you know i'm always that's you know reason to be skeptical about that uh, yeah. for various reasons yeah exactly and then of course i mean the thing with in terms of like theories of evolution and how humans play into it of course you have on the one hand even like the various measures and ways in which how to like talk about general human capacity like the construction of the average human right and then sort of deviations from that in terms of like how you want to try to shape that obviously has a very ugly political history and a lot of it's based on this like these biometricians right these people like fisher and other ones who tried to talk about frequencies without even looking at the causal structure of anything in terms of like the actual like what's going on in evolution and then of course you have of course always think about stephen jay gould's whole thing about you know evolution isn't progress right it's just a drunkard's walk right it's just mm -hmm. like things that shift and i don't know if you know the it also reminds me a bit of the um i don't know if you know peter watts his stuff mm -mm. Uh, he's science fiction uh, but he wrote this series of books i mean he wrote blindsight which is one of the best first contact novels but he also wrote this series of books and i think the first one is called starfish and it, he's a biologist also so it's interesting it starts with like they're mining i think it's a rare i don't know if it's a rare mineral or some other element in the bottom of the ocean and they need people who can psychologically survive this environment, not only physically, which they're like cybernetic, basically, but psychologically be like able to work in darkness and horrible conditions for long periods of time. And so it's basically all abuse victims. So you have this like ocean bottom research station filled with like trauma survivors. And I think it makes a good point in the sense it's like against this notion of like 
suffering makes you stronger. It's like, well, suffering makes you resilient, but like in particular ways, which is never going to be, you know, adaptive, right? There's no like general, there's no like general adaptiveness, right? You can be more plastic when, you know, from the beginning, but you can't really be like better adapted in general, right? So I always think about like, that against the sort of notion of like suffering makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. I know people. I don't. I don't have a good text on this, but I know people have written about the eugen like eugenical stuff, or or like some eugenical things in Dune, especially with the Ben Gesserit. I think that they're essentially, which I mean, if they're like Jesuits, that's kind of funny. If they're also like you know deciding. I mean, because if I remember right, don't they like decide the sort of gene lines, right? Yeah, sort of like, well, they're trying to shepherd the genes to create the Kwisatz Haderach. Right. Sort of like genes so guess, for the end times or something, right? Right, yeah. I mean, it's sort of a messianic ideal. But it has the colonial aspect because they, oh, they, yeah. plant, they plant the seed of the idea of the yeah. Messiah. Well, yeah, uh, for the religion aspect of it, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that's like the Oedipus myth, which I've discussed in our... I think at anti-Oedipus episodes as this kind of colonial myth that I thought, I mean, even Paul, you know, he fits the character of Oedipus so well within uh, mm-hmm. Messiah. I mean, he winds up blind and wandering into the desert. I've read so much stuff about Dune. Uh, I think a lot of it is <laughs> like also for this, for this class I'm teaching now and then for the book, which I have to turn in by August. So hopefully it won't take too long to come out. Um, feel free to I, tell us about the, the book if you'd like. Yeah. As well. I'd love to. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on one myself, just a very like a huge, broad project. Oh, yeah, on the community that has to do with Dune or kind of like looking at mainly through Deleuze and Guattari's work, but also probably a bit of Hegel and some other and Nietzsche and some other characters like Bergson, because I think some of this stuff in creative evolution is really interesting just to even contrast with could a Quitsatz Haderach even exist for someone like Bergson? Because the whole premise at least for part of it, is that where the memory stored for Dune, it's in, in the physical substrate of the genes, right? I'm guessing that's the same mechanism within the Golas, right? Because they have a sort of continuity relative to the physical genes mm-hmm. themselves, the same genetic origin. But I mean, that would even go back to all of life as well. So, One of the interesting ways of reading Dune or, or one... Because people argue about, like, of course, the white savior narratives and all this kind of, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. Right. Yeah. replaying and things like that. It's also, I think, like one of the more sympathetic ways you could read it politically, but I don't know how this plays into Herbert's own politics, would be the ecological narrative of the sense that like there's many, many stories about how environments are seen as like barren or unmanaged or unmanageable, when in fact they've actually have been managed by the indigenous populations for a very, very long time, but they don't appear to be right, simply yeah. because they don't fit the aesthetic model of what managed means for whoever right, shows yeah. up. I mean, that's one way I think that's interest one interesting way of reading the book. I don't know if it plays out in the end. I mean, um, in that regard, how like adapted the Fremen are to their milieu is like almost luck and key. Like it's a tight sort of ship, you know, they have... Mm-hmm. They have a lot of the contingencies sort of figured out by the time we're introduced to them. And I think it also plays a bit against right, the sort of backstory. If I remember how, you know, how much of the empire basically almost killed itself by using artificial intelligence, right? And like we're like relying too much on this kind of externalization without thinking about the consequences. So there's a sort of bio 
there's a sort of kind of like biopunk yeah. Victorianism, right? I mean, sorry, oh. like Victorial kind of like mode in the sense that you have to just do drugs to fly through space. Right. I mean, I also think that Herbert, he's wrapped up in this idea of you're not challenging yourself and you're relying on these machines. That's what mm-hmm. the Butlerian Jihad is about, is that people lost their sort of vital creative impulse to do anything yeah. and humanity sort of stagnated. And that's what the sort of religious... Jihad mm-hmm. brought about was the destruction of that. I was just gonna say what you said about management was interesting, Ben, because the the sandworms are managing Dune in order to make mm-hmm. Melange the spice, without which there wouldn't be the story, right? So, uh, in any case, sorry. I mean, uh, the worms terraform the planet really because the, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the sand trout trap all the water. Phys- they perform provide a physical barrier for the water to be stored under the surface to allow the desert planet to persist. And yeah, I think that's why the books are an interesting complication to a lot of the, yeah, the sort of, as was why some people like, like the books or even like when Reza has written about the books, like especially people from the middle East, take them up. It's kind of inspirational. I think that's one of the ways it works out because otherwise it can fall into this kind of tech, you know, it's called like techno orientalism, right. And mm, it just becomes yeah. this sort of, whether it's Blade Runner or whether it's, um, what else? I mean, just this kind of general right sense of the of some you know abstract notion of Orientalism that's just applied to like these dead places, you know, and these people that need to be helped right by the West right. and this kind of thing. I think the eco complication is an interesting one in that sense. Do you have a provisional title for your book? And is it you mentioned maybe sci-fi is is involved in it? Do you want to say a little bit of a word of that as as a way of leading us out? The title is just called Uninhabited, and it's yeah just about science fiction and, and decolonial theory. Okay. And yeah, so like each chapter is about a region. So they sort of talk about, and then like themes that I think kind of connect in various ways. So I sort of talk about China as like a sort of not quite colonized space and, and look at Chinese science fiction as... And how it, you know, talks about this question of, of habitation and colonialization. So like in, in like the three body problem books, and then talk about, you know, various metaphors about slavery and analogies with, with like artificial life and looking at, um, you know, the middle passage in, uh, you know, in the slave trade and this kind of, this notion of like autonomy and these kinds of things. And then, yeah, talk about, talk about the sort of Orientalism in various forms with Dune and then, uh, yeah, and then Southeast Asia and the sort of notion of of older empires and like the post-apocalyptic and sort of resetting of history. But in a sense, like the, the theory part is to try to do a lot of the stuff on science fiction and colonialism. It'll kind of critique the classics or there'll be like short texts on the newer stuff, but there's not so much about like how science fiction produces a kind of political theory. And there's just so much good science fiction, especially by people of color writing against these tendencies that I think it's better to focus more on that. I think enough people have said, like, here's the, like, you know, science fiction emerged out of this third wave of colonialism, right? Especially the British-led one. Um, and so it has those tendencies, of course, right? Like lost civilizations and all these kinds of things. Um, so I think it's trying to, like, reset what science fiction means mm. now as a sort of, like, inher- almost inherently anti-colonial thing. But I think it happens more in books, whereas in, I think, TV shows and films, there's almost a, like a nostalgic tendency yeah. 
which is going almost count like counter to this. So the fact that you have foundation, you know, as a TV show and like, right. So there's a kind of mismatch, I think between, you know, we sort of want science fiction to be nostalgic and defensive on the screen, but it's, it has much more interesting life, I think written. And there's not, I don't think the two paths have met basically. I mean, that's different, different temporalities. It sounds like, right one backward looking and one forward looking ironically so yeah it feels like that i mean yeah just kind of funny right that you have so much like star wars and star trek like re reboots or like pseudo remakes that are trying to capture like an old spirit yeah as opposed to produce like really interesting great stuff in books that's also like wait maybe like a, you know, a different spirit it's still in it's good science fiction still you know mm-hmm. like that's great. And as I said, you know, um, this would be a, a good reason to have you back and we can continue some of that conversation on Dune when we have your your volume and get a chance to to read some of your chapters and sort of revisit this. I think that would be wonderful. Coop and I are always wanting to to bring more literature on yeah. into our field of discussion and not not always have to be uh, up in the, the metaphysical clouds. Although that stuff is fun. It's all fun. And, you know, literature produces percepts and affects, but there can be concepts of percepts and affects, blah, blah, blah. So they can be in dialogue and we try to we try to like keep things fresh and keep keep moving. But uh, I, I do appreciate you coming and visiting us today, Ben, and, and giving us a lot of this extra information that would require us to sift through you did all the 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 work sifting through all the historical sources so bringing all of that together to give some context for bergson that alone was worth the price of admission and then getting to talk a little bit about the text itself with you that that was really helpful so i'm I'm glad that you uh you mentioned what it was a month or two ago when we mentioned we were going to be doing it and you're like you need to get someone on who knows this shit and i was like (laughs) i know you know it so uh You've yeah, just volunteered. Oh, yeah, because I'm not like a real Brooksonian. So I'm, I hope I didn't like bury Brookson under the context too much. Yeah, it would be a totally different conversation if it was a, if we got a Brooksonian on, you know, it would be, you would be much more partial to him. And I thought you did a, actually, we're, we're fairly partial, but you brought up, I think that we always try to come with, uh, on this show, at least we, you know, we, we, we do try to say, hey, let me push back a little bit. Here's where I, Things don't necessarily seem to work. Um, I think that's that's as, as productive as or more interesting than giving a smooth account that rectifies everything. You know that things are never that that easy, and um, and so it was it was it was great uh, getting to discuss that. And I love the coincidence that you're teaching Dune soon because <laughs> this is partly the Dune unconscious uh, happy hour. <laughs> Just change the name and not mention, like, not even like say what, <laughs> what happens. Yeah, I always bug Coop with, uh, with like wrestling and stuff. That's that's always on on my mind. Um, so I told him, you know, if we had if we had alternate universes of podcasts, one would be just a Dune podcast. I said, like, I would have a podcast called Wrestling with Philosophy or something, right? You know, um, that's a good I, title. I like that actually. That's, it's, that's it's a really bad. good title, like it's wrestling really with title. ideas and stuff. I, yeah, I made no, a, it's good. I made a I made a meme earlier. I put Bergson's head on Kurt Angle. I'm not sure if you're familiar <laughs> with him. He was a he was an Olympic wrestler. He went to the WWE. And he had the three eyes, which is um intensity intelligence oh, and nice. integrity nice. and so i i i like marked out in, intensity and uh integrity and wrote like instinct intuition 
kept intelligence because that's close enough to intellect, right? I mean, that's that's fine, and uh, it looks silly. I'll I'll send you that that meme just because uh, it's yeah, please. I'll send that to you right now. But in any case, Ben, we will let you get back to the rest of your weekend. I just send it to your DMs and Twitter. You'll it's a terrible meme, but it it was meant in good good spirits for today's talk. And once your book comes out, keep in touch. Let me know if you feel like sharing a PDF when it's when it's finalized. That would be wonderful. Otherwise, I'll, sure, yeah. I'll go out and, and publish it and or I'll go out and per- purchase it. Thanks again for joining us, man. That's it's been great. And it's it's good to see you in the virtual flesh. As I yeah. Said. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And yeah, I hope it was coherent enough to have some people listen at least. I think so. I think it'd be great. And it, and, it, and it's going to be nicely following the episode that's dropping today, I believe, or tomorrow on, on Bergsonism. So it's going to like be in dialogue with what we did last week. And, um, and it was a great opportunity because I know that, you know, Coop and I both enjoyed reading Bergson so much. So that's at least if one thing to take away the audience, you know, go out and read some, some Bergson. He's, he's worth it. He's, uh, he's got a good style and, um, He's still relevant for for these discussions. Yeah, even if you disagree with him, he's a good enemy to have. Exactly. Much more rewarding than most. We'll let you go. We're going to stay on just because we're going to discuss what we're doing next week. So do enjoy your your weekend. Thanks again, Ben. Thank you. See you. Once again, thanks to Ben Woodard for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of security, which is the whole state of things, a pure violence without object This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, Logotomized people, as in uh, clockwork orange.